Thanks for listening. The following audio is a teaching from Calvary Tucson's Young Adult Ministry, Ignition. For more teachings, information, or if you'd like to support our ministry, please visit us online at ignitiontucson.com. We pray you're blessed by the message. Verse 4. On the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there. Now, where it says boy, that's the same word for the young men who were there helping him. So we get this impression that Isaac is a little child, but he might not necessarily be a little child. We'll talk more about that in a a minute here. He says, I and the boy will go over there and worship and come to you again. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, which would be a considerable amount of wood, by the way. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife So they went both of them together, and Isaac said to his father, Abraham, my father, and he said, here here I am, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. So it's important to ask as well at this point, okay, how old is Isaac? Because it's significant. It actually gives us more insight into the context of what's happening here. You can do the math. Sarah was actually 90 or 91 years old when she had Isaac. Sarah is 127 when she dies, and this event happens before she dies. So this, at the time that this event occurred, Isaac could very well have been as old as 36 or 37. Understanding that the term for boy and young man can include young adult. Like a a young 30-year-old could be called this very same term. Now, we don't know for sure exactly how old Isaac was, but we know he wasn't a small boy for several reasons. Number one, the previous chapter ended with their sojourning in the land for many days. In other words, there was a great length of time that had gone by, and then it says after these things, this event occurs. So we we can lean towards more time after Isaac's birth rather than closer to Isaac's birth. Another compelling case for an older Isaac is that he had to be able to travel three days and carry this substantial amount of wood for his old dad, who was 100 years old, uh, or older than that, I guess, up this mountain. So chances are he was more like a young adult. Was he in his early 30s? We don't know for sure, but he was probably a young adult. Now, many, because of these observations, many scholars, even Jewish commentators throughout history, believe and teach that he was in his early 30s. And what's so significant about that is Jesus was in his early 30s when he died on the cross. It becomes even more of a picture of Christ. Jesus willingly laid his life down to be sacrificed. And if Isaac was of age as well, then he would have had to be willing to do the same as well. If he was a young adult, he could have easily fended off his crazy old man who wanted to kill him, you know? It would have been really easy for him to take dad, who's kind of old and decrepit at this point. But he didn't. As a young adult, he willingly lays down his life just as Christ did to the Father. Verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on, on the altar on the top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. 
But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Amazing. An amazing interaction. God was, Abraham was ready to see this resurrection. He was ready to do it. Isaac was like, let's do this. I'm ready. They're counting to three. One, two. And then God's like, no, stop, stop, stop. This is all just an illustration for you of what I will do a few thousand years down the road. But as I said, many people read this passage apart from the context of the covenants that God has made and they, they arrive at inaccurate conclusions of God's character. That God approves of child sacrifice. That God condones child sacrifice. That's a popular thing that people like to point to and say with this passage. That God is malleable. That God is very fickle and He just changes His mind. So watch out. He might change His mind about His love for you. That God doesn't know everything because He had to wait for Abraham to do this before He was like, now I know. Now I see how you are. These are the accusations people make against God. In fact, atheists will often use this text to mock God and then turn around and say God doesn't exist, which is typical of atheists. In fact, I don't know if you watch a lot of debates between atheists and Christian apologists, but it's, it's very interesting because the Christian will offer logical evidence as to why an intelligent designer exists. They'll point to scientific evidence that suggests an intelligent designer, an intelligent creator. Logic. They're actually using real logic. And then the atheists so often just spew out reasons why they don't want to believe in the God of the Bible. Those are their big left hook, right hook. Well, your God's mean. Your God sacrifices kids. Your God is not omniscient, even though you say He is. Sorry, but none of those prove God doesn't exist. It just proves you don't like the God who exists. It doesn't mean God doesn't exist. It just means you don't like the God of the Bible. But of course, none of these accusations are true about God. So often atheists will... And by the way, if if you are sitting in class and your professor is an atheist or very hostile towards Christians... Take everything they say with a grain of salt because they are not someone who's studied... Chances are they're not someone who's studied the Scriptures in context. And so, and so what they typically do is they'll take a, a section like this, pull it out of its context, pull it away from the covenants and the faithfulness of God, and, and really just twist it to make God seem some horrific monster. So you, you don't, what I'm saying is you don't want to get theology from an atheist. right? They're not the ones who really study and approach theology correctly. But none of these accusations are true of God. God does not approve of child sacrifice. If you just keep reading in the Scriptures, in fact, you'll see God judge nations because of their practice of child sacrifice. Like God lays the hammer down over these nations after waiting centuries and they continue to sacrifice their children. God is not changeable. He is immutable. He is unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God can only do what is good and that will never change. That will never change. And as far as God's omniscience, did God have to wait for Abraham to do this to know what Abraham was going to do? Absolutely not. You see, the omniscience of God says that God not only knows everything that has happened and everything that will happen, God knows everything that could happen. Some say that God is omniscient and God is sovereign, and so everything is predetermined. 
And so, in other words, God had to draw all these lines and keep everyone in their bumpers. And, and, and really, nobody has a choice. But no, no, that's not actually what the Scriptures teach. God is so sovereign. God is so knowledgeable that He's able to exercise His sovereignty and still give you free will. You see, God has allowed us to make our decisions. And what's so amazing is He allows our decisions to unplay as He unfolds this amazing plan of salvation. And that's what he's doing here with Abraham. He says, now that you have acted accordingly, this is the way in which I will act that is good. He waits for our decisions, and then he acts only according to what is good. We actually see this in the life of Saul. He appointed Saul as king. He knew exactly how Saul would turn out, but he allowed Saul the opportunity to make decisions to where he made enough decisions to disqualify himself as king. And God says, I regret that I have made Saul king. Does that mean he didn't know Saul would go that way? Absolutely not. It meant that God allowed Saul the choice and the chance. And God only would respond according to to what was good. God is immutable and sovereign. God's sovereignty works while while still allowing us this free will. Verse 13. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram, caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Interesting to note, it was a ram, it wasn't a lamb. Was Abraham wrong about his prophecy? No. Because this was a foreshadowing. A lamb would yet, to be, would yet to come and be provided. And what's really interesting, guys, about this, as the Holy Spirit is directing Abraham to say these things, right, is that Abraham didn't say, he didn't call the place the Lord did provide. That would make sense, right? This was the place where God provided that one time. He calls it the Lord will provide. He's saying it's on this mountain, on Mount Moriah, that God will provide what's needed in the future. Now, Mount Moriah, I don't know if you know your history, but Mount Moriah is actually where Jerusalem would be built. And on top of Mount Moriah, at the very top of it, is where Solomon's temple was built, where the sacrificial system was implemented and carried out for centuries. But what's also interesting about Mount Moriah, guys, is it's not just one hill. Mount Moriah has foothills that come down in Jerusalem. And Jesus was crucified on a mountain called Calvary, Golgotha, which is a foothill of Mount Moriah, of this very spot. God is calling His shot right now. He's like, from the bleachers, off the scoreboard, off the, off the back of Satan's head, nothing but net, bam. Like He's calling, He's making it known. He knew from the very beginning what He would do. And as we look at this scene, guys, there's so much in this chapter. I love the life of Abraham, and I love these these insights into faith that we have. But this is such an amazing picture of faith, because what it's saying is that those who come to God in faith, who acknowledge God as the creator of everything, right? When we acknowledge God as the creator, we're, we're saying, what do we have that we weren't given? And so we come in faith, we lay everything on the altar, We lay our very lives on the altar and He provides Himself a sacrifice for us. Jesus, the Lamb of God. And when we do that, our blood is not required of us. 
Do you know that where there is sin, a life is required? And the life is in the blood. And so where there is sin, blood is required. These are all things that have precedence in the Old Testament. And when we come and we say, okay, I, I confess, I am, I am sinful. And we lay our life down in faith before God, just like Isaac did. That is where your life is saved. That is actually, when you say, I deserve death, that is when God spares your life. That is when your blood is not required of you. But the one who rejects God, the one who won't trust God, the one who's not willing to deal with their sins, they're the ones whose blood will be required of them one day, standing before the judge, rejecting the Lamb of God. Guys, this is what Jesus meant when He said, He who seeks to save his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake will save it. If you try to keep your life, if you try to grab on to the control of your life and you reject God and you you reject the option to humble yourself before the Lord and receive Him as Savior, then your blood will be required of you. But we have this amazing picture in Isaac that as we lay ourselves down on the altar, God takes up our lives. And guys, nowhere is your life more valuable than in the hand of God. You think you know what's best for your life? Mm-mm. You're gonna, I'll tell you, you're going to wreck things. God knows what's best for your life. So if we want the lamb provided for us, we lay our lives down as Isaac did. Verse 15. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn. In the New Testament, it tells us that there is no one greater to swear by. So God's like, well, I swear by myself. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of the enemies. Real quick, interesting side note if you're into science, okay? So during Abraham's day, from the naked eye, all you could really count was about 3,000 stars. Three. 3,000. So for God to say, this, the, your descendants will be like the stars in the sky, like all the sands on the seashore, that, that wasn't equal. I mean, there was way more sand than the stars that you could count. But of course, in our day and age, we now understand, in fact, as they've added the math up, this is crazy, they believe that it's somewhere around the same amount of, of grains of sand we have on earth. That's how many stars exist. Mathematicians, you can look it up, mathematicians, it's like 10 to the 25th power or something like that. Pretty amazing. Verse 18. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you've obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young men, and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived in Beersheba. So God comes again, it says a second time, but he confirms this promise to Abraham. And it seems like here, God's like, surely now, surely all of this is going to happen because you did this. And in fact, James, in the book of James, he uses this as an example as to why faith without works is dead. You see, the Apostle Paul really explained to us in Romans that it's not through works that you're saved. It's only by faith. And he said, like Abraham, Abraham was righteous, considered righteous by faith before he ever offered up Isaac. And then James comes around to balance that out and he says, yes, but true faith will lead you to offer up Isaac. 
Faith without deeds is dead. Faith is, is, guys, it's not something that we keep quietly to ourselves, tucked away, deep inside, never to be seen or noticed. That's not faith. That's not what real faith is. Faith is something that we practice. Faith is something that we are to exercise. Hebrews says faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things unseen. Faith is substance and evidence. We, had, we need to put it into action. In fact, I was thinking about it. Faith is kind of like being pregnant. You either are or you're not, for one. You're, you're either pregnant or you're not. But any woman can say they're pregnant at first, and, and you don't really know, right? But if six months go by and you're not shown at all, chances are you are not pregnant, you know? And if you truly have faith in Christ, like, it, it might be hard to tell right away. Sometimes the work of God is slow, but it's consistent and steady. But if you've been walking with the Lord for a few years now, you won't be the same person. There will be maturity in Christ. There will be, there, if you have true faith, it will change you. And that change will be evident in your actions. Your faith will have works. It will. It's just a natural byproduct. But if you've been saying you're, you've been a Christian for years now, guys, and there still isn't the slightest baby bump, a Jesus baby bump in your life, you, you should probably start questioning, am I doing this right? Have I really believed? If there is no change in your life, you need, you need to ask yourself that. Paul says examine yourself to see as whether or not you are actually in the faith. And I, it, it, it's hard for me as a pastor because I'll talk to people a lot and I'll be like, so when did the Lord you know, really come into your life? When did you give your life to the Lord? And I often get this, oh, I was... I've always been a Christian since I was a little kid. There's nothing wrong with that. But if there was never a point in your adult life when you're like, but there was this time where I was like, I'm, I'm committing my life to Christ. And I've, I've committed myself to Him. And there, there hasn't been that point in your life. It concerns me when I talk with people like that. It worries me if there's never been an event in your adult life where you really committed yourself to Him apart from your parents' faith, apart from how you were raised, you really make Jesus your Lord. You allow that, that bump to grow, you know, that faith. You're, and Abraham does that very thing, the father of faith. I mean, he has, a, he, has a, he has a faith baby in this chapter. This action is huge. And so God comes along, and he, the confirmation of God comes in the timeline of Abraham's life as he acts out his faith right here. And so as we close out this chapter, the remaining verses, I just want to point out verse 23. It says, Bethel fathered Rebekah. So it's, set, it's setting us up for Abraham to find a bride for Isaac to come. Now, as we walk away, guys, from this last, uh, this, this chapter here, this very significant chapter, I think it's good to, to look at ourselves and to ask ourselves, is there anything in my life that I'm holding back from God? Is there anything that I'm keeping from him just for myself that I really, God, thank you for all this, but really, just lay off this. Is there any blessing in our life that we've received from God that we're clinging onto with white knuckles because we're afraid of God, is he, that he's going to take it away? If, that, if it's the case, guys, I want to assure you, if you're, if you're struggling with your faith in, in, in regards to these areas, I want to assure you that there is not a blessing in your life that you can't trust God with. You can trust Him with everything. Every detail of your life you can trust God with. Again, your desire for marriage, 
for many of you. You can trust God with the plan of action for your marriage. And if, if you're sleeping around before marriage, you're not trusting Him. You're harming yourself spiritually, but at the same time, you've taken matters into your own hands and you're not trusting God. And you need to be very careful what you'll walk into if that's the case. Because as far as God sees, He's like, well, you're not trusting me in that department. Why am I going to honor you in that department? You can trust God with that area. It's worth waiting, guys. You know, abstinence, celibacy, it is a way to honor God in this season of life. Like you might not ever have an opportunity to honor God in the future. And it will, ble- it will open the door for God to bless you with the right spouse, with the right person. The dreams in your life that you want so badly to achieve, that career, that job, that accomplishment, whatever, you can trust God with these things, guys. Put it in God's hands. The loved ones in your life that you just couldn't live without. If I could be just honest with you guys, that's the one I think I struggle with the most. The thought of losing a child, the thought of losing my spouse. And, and as a pastor, again, doing a lot of memorials, I have to, I, I sit through and I even officiate these memorials where people lose the, the people most precious to them. And God has taught me to really prepare myself. I have to be open-handed even with the people in my life that are most precious. I can trust God with, with my children. I can trust God with, my, with, with Angela, with my wife, even if, even if it means death. We can trust God in life and in death. Just as, much as, just as much as in life we trust God, we can trust Him in death. And that can be hard sometimes, but we need to be open-handed with these blessings, guys. That's what this chapter is, is really exhorting me and encouraging me. So may we not be those who control the blessing so much that God has no room to work in our lives But may we be like Abraham who trusted him with his beloved son. He trusted him with that blessing. May we be like Isaac who trusted him with his very life. He's like, take my life now. Let's do this, Lord. May we be like Job who lost everything. But Job was a man of faith who said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. God knows what he's doing. We might not always understand what he's doing, but we can always know that he's good. He is always good. Amen? Let's all stand. Let's pray. And Father, we do just thank You, Lord, that we have the greatest demonstration of Your goodness given to us through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Lord, if if there's anything in our life that causes us to question Your goodness, Lord, all we have to do is look, look at the lengths You went through, Lord God, to be in a relationship with us. That... Your, your only begotten, beloved son was slain. Isaac's was spared. But your son was slain. Lord, our life can be spared because your son was slain. And we thank you, God, that we have such an assurance and such a hope of your love. And Lord, so we pray right now that you would help us to loosen our grip on the things in our life, loosen control, and allow you room to work in these blessings, God. Allow You the freedom to even remove them, to take blessings away, to bring new blessings in, God. We want to be open-handed with these things so that You would have the most rule and reign in our lives because that, Lord God, that is where abundant life is found. But it's not always easy for us, God. So we pray for Your Holy Spirit, Lord, to equip us, to empower us, to trust You in these things. 
May we be men and women of faith who can trust You, Lord, with with the greatest concerns of our life, with the things we most love and most care about. May we trust You in these areas, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everyone. Pastor Sean here. Thank you so much for listening. Special thanks to those of you who also share this content and help us get the Word of God and the Gospel of Jesus out into our community. We would love to invite you out to our in-person services. We meet every Thursday at 6.30 p.m. at Calvary Tucson's East Campus. In the meantime, keep reading, keep praying, and keep worshiping. God bless you.